0: Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.
1: Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Do you or someone you know feel burned out by work? Have you questioned the place of work in your life and how it balances with everything else? Do we work to live? Do we live to work? Do we reach for and sometimes touch value that is in our work and also somehow beyond our work? What is the meaning of work? Well, here's another question. Can philosophy help us find meaning and purpose at work? That is a question that my guest has been asking and he is helping college students and other people out there in the world to think about and investigate the meaning and the good of work. Paul Blaschko is assistant teaching professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, where he now also serves as director of the Sheedy Family Program in Economy, Enterprise, and Society within the College of Arts and Letters. Dr. Blaschko is deeply committed to matters of practical philosophy and of doing philosophy in public, helping others to engage the world philosophically as a way of life. In the past couple years, he developed and has been teaching a wildly successful course for undergraduate students on the working life. He is also now building a program focused on finding meaning in business through the liberal arts. Along with Megan Sullivan, Dr. Blaschko is the author of The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. He joins me today to talk about what's going on with work, how we think about and approach work, and what difference developing a personal philosophy of work would make. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Paul, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Paul, you do a lot of work, and some of the work you do is work on work. You study work, you teach work. So, I guess that's a way of saying it. You work on work, among other things. In fact, you've been teaching a philosophy course at Notre Dame called The Working Life, or it has to do with work, meaning, and happiness. So I thought maybe a place to start would be to ask you, like, what are you, what are your students trying to figure out in your study of work?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And the place I would start is actually with Aristotle. So as a philosopher, I'm very interested in a tradition called virtue ethics, right? And virtue ethicists are really concerned about this question of how to live a good life or what makes a life good in the first place. So for the virtue ethicist, one of the first questions that you ask, and this is a deeply practical question, is how should I structure or arrange my life so that I can achieve whatever it is that's the greatest good Mm -hmm. that I can identify, right? So for instance, Aristotle thinks we're all aiming at happiness. Ultimately, we want to be happy. He's got a very particular way of thinking about happiness. It's not just kind of like, you know, feeling good one day. <laughs> he calls it eudaimonia. He uses this fancy Greek term. But he thinks, okay, so given that happiness is our ultimate goal, how do we think about whether we should have a family? What are the trade offs in having a family? Now, he, he's obviously not thinking about, you know, work in the contemporary sense. Right. It does come up, right? Even in Aristotle, he's thinking, is manual labor the sort of thing that could ultimately make you happy? Is it compatible with happiness? Or is it just something that some people have to do, but that really, like if, if the, the world were a perfect place, we would eradicate, right? Because, yeah. you know, maybe manual labor, you know, it's it's very difficult and it's very tough. And so maybe it detracts from living a good life. So, okay, within that framework, the class that I teach is basically just a class on work and the good life. Mm. So we're asking questions technically. I, I put it, you know, in this way, I say from the first person point of view, about what it would mean to have meaning and purpose in your work. So one one quick example to illustrate that, we look in the class, you know, after Aristotle, we look in the class at, uh, at Karl Marx, right? And we start asking questions about alienation. Marx yeah. thinks, work is, at least in the contemporary economy, like the kind of the sort of world we inhabit, work is necessarily alienating. It cannot not be alienating, right? So if you're getting paid a wage for a job, You are going to end up alienated. The way he describes it sounds a lot like the way that people talk about burnout today. Mm. So draw some of those connections. Mm -hmm. And so then I pose this as a question to my students. I say, you know, is Marx right about this? Because if he is, this is good to know, right? Like they should not be (laughs) aiming to like be in a position where they're working as much as possible. They should be doing the opposite. Like, yeah, like survive, but then avoid work as much as you can, right? Try to build a life outside of work. So those are the kinds of issues, the kinds of questions that we're asking. And as you can maybe see from the, the two examples even that I gave, the thinkers that we're considering are really just any of the big heavy hitters in the history of the philosophy of work. Mm-hmm. And it's not as though the class, you know, is unified by a sort of ideology or a worldview where it's like, OK, we're just going to think about everybody we think is right about the philosophy of work. We're going to look at people who are constantly in these big debates. We're going to look at Aquinas and then Marx and then John Locke and put them all in dialogue and conversation with each other.
1: You know, it's so interesting to think about, like, this question of what makes life good. In some ways, it seems to me it's a question of, like, not just how to structure your time, but what is time for, right? Like, there's a, there's a finite amount of time that you have yeah. on the day-to-day basis, the span of your life. So is another way of asking this question of, like, what should you use your time for, and how do you parcel out time?
0: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. You know, a basic question in this neighborhood is how we should even think about time, right? And, you know, why we've come to think about it in the way that we have. So we talk about wasting time, right? We talk about free time. We talk about using your time wisely or prudently. Now, this is sort of just the way that we think about it. This is our conceptual framework, right? But some of the thinkers that we read in this class point out that there's a really particular history – To the way that we're thinking about time. We didn't really care that much that we were all on the same time, the same clock, until we had factories where everybody had to show up at the same time, right? And work in sync, right? Be perfectly synchronic.
1: Taylorism, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. So we've got to have, you know, we've got to have a clock that you're punching, right? You're punching Mm -hmm. the clock. And then, you know, to think about time as something that you could steal from your employer or time as something that somebody could own, that you could sell to somebody, right? These are are really pretty contemporary ways Mm. of thinking about time. Now, one of the things that we do in the class, and one of the most powerful things, honestly, is we reflect on those things. We get some critical distance from that. And then we look at radically different ways of thinking about time. I'll mention two. One comes from Joseph Pieper, right, Mm -hmm. in this fantastic book called Leisure is the Basis of Culture. So good. And he encourages us to think about leisure and contemplation as a way of connecting with time differently. So instead of thinking about leisure as, like, sitting on the couch and watching Netflix and, like, (laughs) relaxing, right, so that you can, like, restore your energy in order to then go out and work harder, he says, you know, it's a totally distinctive thing, right? It's a way of connecting and being open to reality, And temporal reality is as important as kind of the physical reality, whatever, that will transform your experience of time in your life. That's a really hard concept. It's a really hard sort of book to get into. And I would say one of the the sort of overarching goals in my class is just to understand enough about the philosophy of work and the way that we think about time to look at his view and think, oh, I get that. And I Mm. see why it's so radically challenging to the way that, you know, in sort of the modern world, we think about it. I said I'd mention two examples, so I'll just reference the other one. <laughs> Let's see. So Joseph Pieper was one yeah. of them. And then Abraham Joshua Heschel is the yeah, other. Yeah, He's got this yeah. book on the Sabbath that we read a little bit of. Yeah. And and actually, they're kind of connected in the way that they think about architecting time, like yep. using leisure or contemplation or even worship as architecting time creating sort of a palace in time or whatever it might be and again just a radically different way uh, of thinking about it and Heschel is a lot more poetic I think <laughs> than uh than Peeper. but I'll just reference that that's the other one that, that I said I would take off about. your debts yeah yeah, 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 yeah. They're, yeah they're, so, they're so good
1: they're so good absolutely so I wonder do you find that most people operate with a kind of default belief about work so maybe this is you know students that come into the course you know or just starting off or what you're reading out there or just you know, generally talking to people about work—is there a sort of commonplace, maybe un, even uncritical assumption today about work before you get to any of this real critical reflection on it?
0: Totally. And here, I actually just start from my own experience. Mm. So the reason I, I don't know, wrote this class—the reason I, I designed it in the first place. Is because after having gone to school for like 17 years or whatever (laughs) I did, right, I got a real job. And about 18 months into that job, I just had to stop and realize that I was assuming things about work Hmm. that probably weren't true and that were certainly very unhealthy, right? So one of the things I was assuming was that a huge source of meaning in my life would come through acquiring more power and agency in my job. And I think for a lot of people, that is actually true, right? If you're like barely surviving and you're struggling to like feed your family or something, you can acquire more agency in getting a better job or in, you know, cultivating some skills that allow you to get certain kind of wages or whatever. But the, the way I was thinking about it primarily was in terms of status rather than survival mm. or even flourishing. It was like, I need more power yeah. because I need more respect because I want other people to think I'm important. Like that was just how, how I was thinking, and it was leading me to like you know again, this is you know barely out of grad school, but like you know I'm, I'm twelve months <laughs> in, and I'm working like you know ten or twelve hours for for weeks at a time,
1: and then I did a, you a Qu- ten to yeah, twelve yeah, yeah, hours yeah, a day. <laughs> <laughs> I was working ten hours a week, and I just wasn't getting the recognition. That's what I realized,
0: <laughs> you know, as a grad student, you know, no. Yeah. 10 or 12 hours a day. And, you know, I I just kind of hit this wall. It was like a midlife crisis, like 12 months into my first job. (laughs) And I hit a wall and I just realized like, wait a second, these assumptions, they're not only false, but they are like literally destroying me. Like I'm burning Mm, out mm, immediately upon, mm. you know, getting in the workforce. Now, I think something like that is incredibly common amongst our students and one of the things that I, I'm working really hard on trying to understand right now is why that is. I think the sort of influences and, and, and factors are going to be systematic and social and, you know, right. they're going to be explained at various levels. I, I, I read and work a little bit with a psychologist who works on burnout and, mm. you know, she's got all of these sort of explanations and theories about why this is happening to young people in particular and young people at elite liberal arts education, right. you know, et cetera. But I do find that this is kind of the default, right? So for both me and my students yesterday in class, I said, does anybody feel guilty when they're not doing anything, when they're oh just my. sitting down? Does anybody they feel totally guilty? They totally do. And yeah, we yeah do. they, they all do. do. I do. You do. Right? Yeah, like I, we all do. Yeah. Sometimes I sit down and my kids are around me. And they're like, will you read me a book? And I'm like, "Ah, oh, I could read you a book, but I could also answer so many emails right now, right? That's still sort of like in my soul. And so we reflected on that a second. We thought like, okay, yeah, we, we all do. We all feel guilty. And I thought, like, what work ethic, what sort of picture would have to be true in order for that guilt to be justified? Mm. And we went all the way back to like Max Weber or whatever. We, you know, talked about, you know, different work ethics that we might have. But the thing that we came to was this idea that if you're not constantly being productive, you are being lazy. You're harming yourself and people around you in society, And we just sat with that for 20 minutes and talked about it and tried to pick it apart. Because if you seriously have that view, and if you think that the more resources you have, the more responsibility you have, and if you think that as a Notre Dame student, you have an incredible amount of resources and people have invested so much in you, you are setting yourself up for a catastrophic life crisis. And they all know it, and it just feels inescapable. So if in the course... We can just do enough thinking. We can do enough dialogue to escape that or at least reflect on it, get some distance from it. Uh, I think, like, yeah, that's at the end of the day, like mission accomplished.
1: For sure. <laughs> yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm joined today by Paul Blaschko, assistant teaching professor in the Department of Philosophy at Notre Dame and now director of the Sheedy Family Program in Economy, Enterprise, and Society. So, Paul, obviously, the working world has changed quite a bit in the past few years. People's ideas about work and what work means in their life, maybe asking some of these questions almost instinctively out of desperation in the last few years. What's the – what ought to be work-life balance, for example, or where should I work? Physical location, but also the kind of field I should be in. What does it mean to work? All these things may have been bubbling. I'm just wondering, since you – you know, part of, I think, what you do is not only looking into the history of the thought around work, but also paying attention to current trends. What kind of things have you been seeing and what have you been thinking about those trends?
0: Yeah, so I had – The most amazing phone call with my brother about eight months into the pandemic. So my Mm. brother works in the Twin Cities in Minnesota at a car dealership. And he's done pretty much everything you can do at a car dealership, except for like fix the the cars. He's sold cars. He's, you know, been in the service station. He's he's kind of managed people and teams. So at the beginning of the pandemic, pretty early on, he got laid off. But in Minnesota, the unemployment benefits, given the pandemic and the emergency aid and everything, were so significant that he ended up making, you know, maybe 20% more than he was when he was actually working. No way. When he was laid off, right? He was unemployed. Right. And he did that for, you know, four months or whatever. He's looking for work. He's looking for a job, but, you know, he's getting paid more than he was when he was working. And he calls me one day and he says, Paul, his name is James. He goes, Paul, my boss just called me and said they're going to bring some people back and he's wondering if I want one of those spots, Right. And he's like, I'd be making less than I am now. to take a pay cut to and, um, take yeah, a job. they could take a pay cut. <laughs> and if I don't do this, you know, I could stay on the unemployment benefits mm-hmm. for another couple of months. And they said, then they would bring me back or whatever. So it's just economically irrational. It's crazy for me to go and do this right now. But he goes, I think I'm going to do it. And I was like, great, James. And, and, he, and he just like pauses for a minute. And he goes, do I work for more than just money?
1: Oh my, <laughs> how about that?
0: And I was like- Yeah, like you do, (laughs) right? And it just – it was amazing because it it gave him this chance to conceptualize and think really seriously about and reflect on what those other things are, right? Now, here's a list of what they could be. Maybe it's community. Maybe it's friendships and relationships. Maybe it's status, right? And, And not in a pejorative sense. Maybe not in a bad way, right? Like we need status in order to feel respected and appreciated as social, rational, dependent animals, you know? Maybe it's this sense of agency, the sense that he's doing something in the world, right? And all of those things are really good things, and they're not necessarily correlated with pay, like in a one-to-one sort of way. And so to have that moment, that opportunity, that kind of miniature little crisis point gave him the ability, this time, the space to actually rethink his relationship to work. Now, I think a lot of people, as evidenced by the great resignation, are in this exact same position things about their lives that seemed fixed and permanent and structured and unchangeable suddenly were shown to be completely contingent. You don't have to be in the office eight hours a day to get as much work done as you can if you're doing it, you know, whenever you can from home, okay? And so the kind of explanations we have for, well, why do we have to commute? Why do we have to be in the office together? Suddenly they were just shown to be obviously false. Yeah. On the other hand, we notice things like when we're all at home working, you know, maybe fewer hours per week in general, doing the same amount of work, we're also deeply miserable. And so then we think, well, so is one of the good things that we get out of work just, you know, being together and being part of a community and not just in a a sort of, you know, side benefit sort of way, but in a way that actually benefits that community, that corporation, that company, whatever it might be. And, you know, again, in my own experience, the answer to that is obviously yes. If I'm around other professors and I get coffee for five minutes, I'll come away with an idea that will make my course a hundred times better. Whereas if I sit for 40 hours a week by myself alone in my room and I spend a year doing that, I just would never have come across that idea. So I think, you know, as now we're rethinking, like, okay, we've got to go back to work. How's it going to be structured? And how do we make it flexible? How do we keep the good things in the pandemic? I think all of those things, I mean, this is just a huge opportunity, right, to be so much more intentional about that. But it's also incredibly complex. It's just difficult, right? Like, there's just no easy answer. And I think that is frustrating and hard, especially for employers who think, like, what do we
1: just do? Everybody's <laughs> remote and it's optional. Everybody's in here like what are we doing you guys? And there's so many puzzles around it. But Totally. I think total. that's kind of the moment we're in. Yeah, you know, thinking about your own your work, Paul. Yeah. I think, you know, for many people who think about like scholars in the academy, they imagine like some remoteness like mm-hmm back up in an ivory tower thinking thoughts, like you were saying, like maybe locked up in my office doing whatever I can do. And maybe for a philosopher, most of all, right? Like this would be the image of the philosopher who's sitting, you know, off by himself thinking these great thoughts and trying to uh, write them into books or teach them in classes. But for you and your work, I mean, it's very apparent, like one of your driving motivations, it seems, is to bring philosophy to the public, to be not just to be a public philosopher, but to help the public do philosophy and engage some of this critical thinking in ways that kind of works with where people are Tell us a little bit about that and like yeah. how you do it why you do it where the inspiration from that for that comes from yeah totally so the way
0: I would just describe this approach to philosophy yeah. is as philosophy is a way of life yeah fi life. <laughs> we've been working on this that's for your a while. T-shirt? Yeah, that's a, yeah, the that's t-shirt. A t-shirt pilot. We've been working on this for a while. Even here at Notre Dame, we've we've been uh, working on setting up a network of philosophers who are interested in approaching mm-hmm. philosophy in this way. And it, it's certainly my basic philosophical orientation. So the way I would describe the approach is exactly what you just said. You take philosophical theory and you bring it up against the facts and life, mm-hmm. as Aristotle tells us, right? And you see what resonates and what doesn't. Because I can sit in my office and I can have, you know, all of these thoughts about the logical connections between all of the concepts that we use in work, time, productivity, all this kind of stuff. I could get out in the world and I could just like talk to somebody and just be like, oh, (laughs) let me explain, worker, your experience (laughs) of, you know, the factory or whatever it might be. And, you know, not only am I going to do that poorly because like academics are notoriously like jargon. They're just like throwing around (laughs) these big words to be like, yeah, I've got a big brain, you know. But also, it could be that if I can – even if I can translate that into language, you know, just get rid of the sort of jargon, uh, it could very well be that that just does not capture real life. Right. It's just not right. capturing any sort of experience, especially for somebody like us who's never had a real job. Maybe you have. <laughs> I've never had a real job. I've just been studying my whole life. Uh, I, I
1: mean, did like, work at Outback Steakhouse I yeah. worked for catering. Yeah, company. yeah, know, yeah. I
0: worked at Target. Uh, yeah. You know. It was great at Outback, actually. <laughs> I worked at a bookstore. So that's a huge part of the motivation for approaching philosophy in this way. It's a really practical – in a really practical way. The history and inspiration of it, which, you know, might help illustrate it even more, Mm. is that when I was in – when I was in first grade, I was on the playground and I was playing with a Lutheran because I'm from Minnesota. Yeah. And this Lutheran looked at me because I was a weird kid and talked about religion all the time. And he said, do you really eat the body and blood of Christ? And I was like, of course we do. And he was like, then why does it look like bread? And I was like, oh. (laughs) And I was that moment I was like, need to research. And I just like went home and I was like, mom, dad, like what is going on here? And they were like, well, you know, check these books out. And they were these just basic apologetics books, right? And I read them and I thought like, this is amazing. This, it not only gives me a, a way of arguing, right? Like a way of debating or something like that. But it gives me a way of inviting somebody into dialogue about this issue that it seems crazy and abstract, like this theory of metaphysics and like, how could it be that like, you know, the the accidental properties of some substance or, you know, whatever, to bring them into dialogue and open up my world and say, hey, this is what I believe. And it affects every aspect of my life, right? The fact that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, that that's what I believe, it changes the way that I live, right? It changes where I'm at on Sunday. It changes where I'm at on a daily basis or whatever it is. It changes uh, how I think I should worship or, you know, all of these things. And so I went, you know, from first grade, to middle school, I was reading all kinds of apologetics books, you know, and, and, and I still love the, the apologetics. You know, I was like watching YouTube. As soon as YouTube came out and apologetics is a thing on YouTube, was watching every <laughs> you YouTube debate. You help yourself. And, and then at some point, the switch flipped and I discovered philosophy, And I discovered, you know, a lot of the sources that apologists will draw on Thomas Aquinas, for instance, you know, really uh, a lot of the thinkers kind of classic thinkers in the virtue ethics tradition. And I thought like, oh, I I have to do this for the rest of my life. Like, I just want to keep doing it. And so again, like in college, my friends and I, and this is totally weird and not necessary if you're doing philosophy, but my friends and I, we would encounter some practical problem, some real problem. Like what is the appropriate way to relate to your friends. The first place we would go is the Summa. And then we would go back to Aristotle. And then we would look at contemporary philosophers on friendship and love, you know, and then we would like formulate this theory. And then we go out in the world and be like, oh, that was false. That's crazy. (laughs) That was not the right way to approach it. Right. But we were constantly going back and forth on this kind of stuff. And that's still how I see philosophy. right? It's something that's embodied as something that's lived. Now, I don't think like Things that aren't that can't be philosophy. It could be that like, you know, the metaphysics of identity is great philosophy. And it could be that maybe in principle, it can't be applied to everyday life. But the kind of philosophy that I love the most and that that I want to kind of continue to do is the sort of philosophy that can be embodied and that can be evaluated as much by the fruits that it has as you live, as it can be sort of theoretically and logically and analytically.
1: Mm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm joined today by Paul Blaschko, assistant teaching professor in the Department of Philosophy at Notre Dame, and now director of the Sheedy Family Program in Economy, Enterprise, and Society. Why don't we talk a little bit about this program that you're developing uh, and you're and you are directing the yep. Sheedy Program? Uh, in some ways, it picks up on many of the things we've been talking about here. But the, as far as I understand it, the the approach of the program, the the reason for the program is to bring together both liberal arts students and business students to inquire about the meaning in business, how to find meaning, totally. which is really a kind of captivating thought because it's not saying finding purpose in business because you could say, well, here's the purpose of a business, right? It's to do X, Y, Z, the thing that it's ordered to. But to find meaning might be a little bit closer to like your story about your brother, for example. Like there's more in my work than what I thought it was for. Tell us about this program and the aim of it and what it means to find meaning in business.
0: Yeah, so let me start with the last question. What does it mean to find meaning in business? And the way I'll approach it is actually, again, by going back to Aristotle, Mm -hmm. right? So when Aristotle's talking about work, and he talks about work a a fair bit, He has this idea that the reason why you're doing something changes the nature of the action itself, right? So what your motivation is, what your intention is actually changes the nature of the action, right? As an example of this, if I say to somebody, man, you look really good today, and I'm doing that in order to flatter them, in order to acquire power or something like that. That's one way of characterizing, truly characterizing what I'm doing. And that is a different action than if I say, man, you look really good today. And I'm doing that in order to just give them a genuine compliment mm-hmm. because I recognize, yes, you you do in fact look good. And like, you know, I, I know this will sort of boost your confidence, whatever. It's a nice thing to do. So it's just literally a different action, right? Okay. So Aristotle says why you're doing something and who you're doing it for can transform the nature of your work. So if you're doing manual labor because you are forced to, because you're a slave and some state is like you are going into the mines and you are doing manual labor 10 hours a day, this is going to be miserable in large part because it's meaningless for you, right? It's meaningless for you. Maybe there's a a purpose, like you said. You know, they need the the mines, you know, to be cleared, whatever. But there's no meaning in it for you. And that is going to make it unbearable, intolerable, right? Whereas if you find, you know, I'm into tough economic circumstances, maybe the country that I'm living in is, is, you know, at a point of development where literally the best job available to me, maybe the only job available to me is working in the mines. And if I do this, I'm going to be able to feed my six-month-old baby. You can do that for as long as it takes, right? You can do that for years. And you can think like, well, okay, the reason I'm doing this, you know, anytime you you find yourself thinking like, I'm going to – I'm just – I can't this, do this. I can't carry this anymore. You think there's a reason why I'm doing this. It's for my family. Now, the best case is one where you're not doing something that you otherwise would hate, but you're doing it to survive. And so you're – what we – you know, in philosophy we say that you're instrumentalizing your work, Uh you know, for your personal reasons or something like that, which, again, sometimes you just have to do. But the best case is one in which – the meaning of your work is actually aligning with the overall purpose of the company and serving your individual goals, right? So if I'm writing books, like this is one of my favorite, you're, you know all about this, you're <laughs> writing books and you're getting paid to do it and you're doing it for a cause that you believe in uh-huh. and you're doing it because it's a way of evangelizing or it's a way of helping or it's a way of whatever, you're going to find meaning in that. That is perfectly aligned with this other goal that you have, which is feeding your family. And it's perfectly aligned with the goal of your employer. And that is just, that's the perfect fit. That's the ideal situation, right? If you can find that kind of work. There's a lot of reasons why that's difficult to find. And there's a lot of things that you can do when you can't find it. Even things philosophically you can do when you can't find it. And we do talk about that quite a bit in the class. You know, you can become a stoic Or, you know, you can, you know, look for ways of instrumentalizing that are less objectionable or whatever it might be. But that's, for me, that's one of the the deepest goals of this program is to help students find that kind of meaning in work. So that means, you know, discerning a lot about themselves, knowing a lot about themselves. But it also means knowing a lot about business, like literally knowing what you would be doing if you're a management consultant, right? And why we have management consultants (laughs) and what they do in the world and whether you agree with what they do or disagree with it on like a basic human level or like a moral level. It also means knowing a little bit enough about the liberal arts. You've got to know what your picture of human nature is. You've got to know if there are alternatives. Otherwise, you're just going to end up conceptually confused as soon as you try to put this into practice, right? So in the program, what we're doing is we're trying to marry the liberal arts and business so that these students as individuals can flourish, right? Yeah. And so each year we admit 20 or 30 students into the program. They're part of a cohort. Our goals are, you know, helping them find this kind of meaning, providing them with support for their research and for getting practical experience, you know, internships or whatever it might be. And then my, you know, personal favorite one is creating a really rigorous, intellectual, tight knit community so that they can have a place to dialogue about this stuff with mentors and faculty, but also with other students. So every month, you know, we'll have a community dinner. There's this place here on campus called the Oak Room. It's like a second floor, very Oxford looking
1: room <laughs> of the South Dining Hall. Right, the yeah. South Dining yeah. Hall. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And, you know, once a month, we're just going to have some speaker come in. And it could be, I mean, oh, man, in the ideal world, John Jenkins comes in and he says, like, look, I am the head of an organization, but I am also a religious. How do I think about that Mm. stuff? Or we have a business leader come in and say, like, I am an employer. How do I think about people who know a lot about, you know, John Locke? Like, do, do I think about that, you know? Or we'll have a faculty come in and say, look, I've been studying burnout and you guys, this is alarming. <laughs> like, you know, stop doing this. Start doing that. Whatever. Download the call map. Whatever it is. I don't know. So that's, you know, again, one of my sort of the things I'm most excited about is being part
1: of that community of
0: dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have so many thoughts well, about know, this. You all of
1: this, I mean, you started even at the beginning talking about the study of marks in your class. And one of the things that you're studying right at the beginning of the class is the – Proposal that all of work is alienating, right? <laughs> and it would seem that the person, therefore, is taken out of the work. Like it's the the work is done, the action is done for the results. But it doesn't answer the question of why am I doing this work yeah. for this result? Yeah. So it sounds to me like as we're thinking about this both in, in your class and in what you're talking about in terms of doing philosophy and public philosophy as a way of life. And now with this program, it seems to me like it's a, it's an attempt and an engagement about putting the person back at the center of reflection. Oh, totally. So, talk to us about that as we come to yeah. come to an end here. So, one of my favorite, I guess I'd
0: call it like an intellectual tradition related to the philosophy of work is Catholic social teaching, mm-hmm. and this idea you would know better than I would all We're of the probably senses wouldn't, of but. of, <laughs> of uh, personalism, yeah. but. This idea that, you know, thinkers, even John Paul II, who wrote this beautiful encyclical I'm going to butcher the name of it, but laborum exertions mm. work with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wrote this beautiful encyclical about the nature of work, right, in the yeah. human person. It's got this idea that if we lose track of the human person, everything else is going to be distorted, right? How is it possible? How is it even possible? that we, you know, thought that the sort of factory model was like just and good. Well, it's because we're not considering people as people. We're considering them as labor, Mm -hmm. as sources of labor, as sort of, you know, commodities or producers of a commodity. So to keep the human person in the picture is something that's absolutely vital and absolutely essential. Now, I think, you know, if you read business ethics literature today or even just like management books or whatever it might be, People realize that, right? And they realize it in different ways and for different reasons. It's really interesting to see, you know, op-eds in the Wall Street Journal. Look, like treating your workers as humans is going to be more efficient. It's better for your bottom line. And that is true. On the other hand, that's not the only reason to treat them as humans, right? And people realize that too. And so one big puzzle in business, honestly, is how to keep the human person, how to keep your worker in view as a human person? Like, what are your obligations to them as a person? And how do you even articulate that in a sort of economy like ours or in a society like ours where, you know, the tools we use, tools, you know, having to do with markets and having to do with like capitalism and having to do with profit maximization and everything else, the tools we use don't always make room for that. Now, some people are working in really innovative ways to try to adapt those tools to make room for the human person. Other people think, well, we've just got to come up with a completely different system entirely or, you know, we've got to get rid of this way of thinking about, you know, the minimum wage or whatever it might be. In a way, all of these people are responding to the same problem, which is just how do we appropriately respond to and keep the human
1: person in view when we're organizing the way that our society does work? Oh, man. Well, Paul, this has just been so illuminating, and thanks so much for breaking this open for us to talk about work, to talk about meaning, to talk about doing philosophy in public. Thanks so much for this time. Absolutely. Thank you. Friends, if you'd like to find out more about this course we talked about, The Working Life, you can find that by searching for it at Notre Dame. A lot of the course material is actually outward-facing, so you'll be able to see what they're doing and uh, follow along with some of the videos You can find out more about the program that Paul is now directing. It is the Sheedy Family Program in Economy, Enterprise, and Society. It's in the College of Arts and Letters at Notre Dame. You can also find out more about Paul's work really all over the place. You'll find him on all various forms of media, and I highly recommend it. For now, thanks for joining us on Church Life Today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. And is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
0: This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.
1: Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code Redeemer. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God.